hello everyone and welcome back to know it all podcast i am your host riley sue and i am so excited to be joining you today for another episode last week we covered the history of menstrual products and attitudes towards periods throughout history and i know that that wasn't everyone's cup of tea maybe unless you're a vampire (laughs) but i think that discussing these topics and uncovering where we've been and where we are still falling short like in ethiopia and nepal is just is just, you know, a really, really important conversation. And it's one that I've been enjoying having with you guys. This week, though, I actually had an entirely different topic selected for today, and it was going to be another really in-depth kind of like biography. But honestly, y'all, I've been having a tough go of it with my depression, which is fine. That's life. And I'm more than comfortable taking things slow when my body or my brain tells me I need to. And I'm perfectly comfortable being honest about that fact of my existence. But even so, the person that I had selected was somewhat of a heavy, intensive kind of like story, and it was beginning to weigh on me. So I shelved that topic and I shelved that research for a later time and decided we are still going to be sticking with the theme for Women's History Month, but we're going to be doing a pretty broad overall discussion about something that I think we could all use to learn a little bit more about. Plus, it'll be fun. I promise. You know, all the time we learn history and hear about times throughout the past that's entirely from a man's perspective. I mean, even last week we had giant holes because history has been chronicled almost entirely by men. The Aztecs, a culture who loved blood and used it constantly in ceremonies, was also a culture where gender identity was a very far second to tribal identity. And I'm almost certain that the viewpoint towards someone who bled on a cyclical basis would be that they're incredibly powerful and that menstruation should be viewed as badass, right? Well, we don't get to know, because the Spanish and other early European men who made contact with them never thought to ask. They saw menstruation as disgusting, and they thought that a civilized people would just simply agree with them. And this omission or total ignorance of a female or anything other than a heteronormative, Eurocentric male perspective is everywhere in history. So I just kind of kept stewing on that and thinking about where I felt there was an even larger than normal like disproportion of viewpoints between the two sexes, and specifically American history and I landed on the American West. So without further ado, here is our final installment, our final episode for Women's History Month 2023. And let me tell you, I think that this one truly goes not with a fizzle, but with a bang. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty, like you know how we love to do over here, let's talk about what I mean when I say the American West or the Old West or Wild West or the frontier or just the West or whatever. So I'm literally going to reduce the beginning of the American timeline here to basically as little as I possibly can. And I'm also going to kind of cut it off at the knees, ignoring everything that happened before the U.S. gained independence. So this is everything that you need to know. The U.S. gained independence from Britain on July 4th, 1776. And then from there, we won the Revolutionary War and slowly crept our way further westward, displacing native peoples and taking down swaths of developed culture until the beginning of the 1800s. States like Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, and even Connecticut were much larger than they are today, and expanded in almost straight lines westward until they hit the Mississippi River. Present-day Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and parts of Minnesota were included in what was called the Northwest Territory. This was an area of unorganized territory, and it wouldn't gain statehoods, be broken down into smaller sections, or even get the names that we know them by until the 19th century was coming to a close. And when I talk about the West or any of the other 15 names that I rattled off for it earlier, I'm talking about the areas past this Northwest Territory. I'm looking at all the land that, air quotes, became part of the United States in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase. But that's actually not even right. I'm talking about 
everything past the Mississippi River, anything west of there. For all intents and purposes of this episode and our discussion, that's going to be the west for us, anything past the Mississippi. So on April 30th, 1803, President Thomas Jefferson and the United States purchased 530 million acres of land from France for $15 million, which comes out to around four cents an acre. Also, that $15 million would be a casual $400 million today. Fun fact, if you didn't know it, I am from Missouri. And when you're from a state that literally calls itself the gateway to the West and your only national park is a monument that is the physical embodiment of that phrase, westward expansion and Louisiana purchase are very much drilled into your head. I don't even think fourth grade history in Missouri is anything other than Missouri history, but I'm also not sure. I probably should be though. My mom teaches that and has for like 20 years. (laughs) But basically, the arch makes me cry, and I used to love to rattle off that fact about each acre costing four cents to anybody who would listen. But there were already people living in this area past the Mississippi River whenever this purchase took place. Of course, it had long been home to native groups, and along the waterways there were European fur traders and missionaries. At the time the United States bought the land, there were around 60,000 non-native people living in the territory, around half of which were enslaved Africans. And I guess I should also say that the Louisiana Territory held much more than the treasure trove that is Missouri. We're talking Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, of course, Iowa, South Dakota, Montana, Nebraska, Wyoming, Colorado, Kansas, part of Utah, and part of Texas, some of North Dakota, and a little bit of Idaho, all in this giant freaking huge area. Like, I don't know how else to convey to you how big this is. And you might be like, why is she going on and on about how big it is? And to that, I say two things. One, that's what she said. And two, you know I'm not leading y'all astray. You need to understand the vastness of this area because it's going to give you a better understanding of why this area was so difficult to manage and just so difficult to enforce laws in. And it's also going to give you some perspective when we talk about just how far some of these women we discussed today went in the quest for glory. All right, so I think you get it. We're moving out towards the wild, wild west, and there's a whole lot of land to mess with. Let's establish something else about this time frame we're in today, and that's Manifest Destiny. Did your cat just start crying? Did you catch a chill up your spine? You feel like there's something eerie in the air? Well, you're not alone here. Manifest Destiny is one of those things in U.S. history that just really gives me the ick. There's no better way to put it. It makes you feel all sticky and stiff inside, and you don't really want to think about it. Like your grandparents going at it or the end of How I Met Your Mother? No, no, nope, no thank you. But Manifest Destiny is important for us to understand because I think it represents a solid idea for what people thought about their place in the world. And by the world, I mean the United States. Manifest Destiny is easily summed up as the belief that American settlers were destined by God to expand across North America. Basically, this whole America, United States, Democratic Republic, American excellence thing that we've got going for us is the tits. And we think that everybody needs to get on board or get wrecked. Now, let's be clear here and also establish that Manifest Destiny wasn't coined as a term until 1845, so a good while after the expansion West began, but it still speaks to that general culture. Americans as a whole thought that they needed to spread themselves far and wide into every corner of the continent, eliminating what many of them viewed as outdated, unsophisticated, and simple native cultures, and thus flexing the power of a morally righteous and seemingly perfect nation. Manifest Destiny, in my opinion, was just an excuse. Just a reason made up by white men to make them feel more powerful and to make them feel like it was their right, nay, their duty, to make everyone in their path assimilate. And I understand that this expansion is part of what made the U.S. into a superpower and that the country and the world would be wildly different today if it hadn't been done, but I just think that literally shoving it down people's throats or killing them if they don't comply is a bit much. 
I mean, all of my traceable relatives lived in Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, Missouri, and other places. I've benefited from this expansion west. My family may have never left Pennsylvania if it hadn't been for these additions, and I may have never existed. But also, if it had been done differently, if it had been done with maybe a bit more tact, my spouse and so many other people and their families would be able to trace their lineage like mine and see the places that their ancestors long called home. We erased history and culture to implement our own, to cultivate and harvest American excellence, and it was systematic. It wasn't a mistake. Let's just be clear here that I'm not going to glorify the American expansion West. I'm just going to highlight some women that were there and did stuff besides be little wives. I could talk about what's been lost to history and what's been done because of bumbling boys any day. But this day and this month is about the ladies, so let's take it back to what life was like in the West. Now, you may come up with names like Daniel Boone, Davy Crockett, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, Kit Carson, or Sam Houston when you think of the Wild West. And it's likely that when you think of these people, you have a specific image in mind. Maybe a raccoon skin hat with a little tail. Maybe the Lewis and Clark expedition with canoes and trading coins with natives comes to mind. Maybe you have an image of a white man wearing buckskin clothes and carrying a long rifle. Maybe it's covered wagons, a la Oregon Trail. And maybe if you grew up in the 90s and 2000s, like me, it's still a la Oregon Trail, but it's your 16-year-old daughter boobs died of dysentery. (laughs) I don't know about y'all, but I just thought it was so funny to see the computer populate the word boobs or butthole whenever somebody died in that game. So everyone in my family was named accordingly. And if any of those thoughts besides the last one resonated with you, then you're pretty much on the right track for how things went at this time. I mean, people did die of dysentery, but I don't think that it was anyone who went by the name boobs could be wrong. The journey west was hard and rugged, and families often had children or others who died along the way or would never even make it to their destination at all. When people began loading up and heading west, there was no I-70. There literally weren't even real established roads and certainly no lights along them. By covered wagon, people would travel 8 to 20 miles per day, depending on weather, road conditions, and the health of those traveling. Driving back and forth across Kansas to get to Colorado, my spouse and I often come back to the same conversation while the sun is going down and the night is growing stronger. What was it like for them? In these long stretches of plains after you leave the density of the Midwest and before you hit the rugged Rocky Mountains, did they understand just how much ground they had to cover? Were they hopeful? Where were the women? What was it like for them? The trend of people moving to the West hit a peak in the early 1840s. Everything about the life on the frontier was new. New places and new terrain every mile you traveled and new expectations. Because if success was going to be possible, it could only be achieved through a highly functional and hardworking family unit. But that's not to say that every woman who was making the journey and trying to establish herself was a part of a family. The Homestead Act passed in 1862 and stated, quote, any person who is the head of the family, one who has arrived at the age of 21 years, end quote, could claim land for themselves. There's a lot of history that focuses on how traditional and nuclear style families benefited from the act. But women, whether single, divorced, or widowed, could also be considered the head of a family. One scholar estimated that in the first 50 years the Homestead Act was in place, women accounted for one-third of all of its claims. Another act passed in 1862, the Morrill Act, encouraged states and territories in the West to establish land-grant colleges. These new universities were more accepting of female students than their Eastern and private counterparts. Land-grant colleges like Oregon State, Utah State, and the University of Nebraska became some of the first public colleges in the world to promote co-education. By 1872, the American West boasted 67 of the nation's 97 co-ed schools. With the end of the Civil War in 1865, there was a boom in completion of railroads to the West. 
White people came to the land across the Mississippi to mine, farm, and ranch. Black people came to the West convinced by promoters that all black Western towns held promise of a better life, and Chinese immigrants worked on the railroad. By the 1880s, most Native Americans had been pushed off of their land and into reservations, reservations that had been decided to be less desirable or unfit for white settlers. The West was brimming with new ideas and perspectives, but at the same time was denying many people the freedom and life that they had hoped for. It all depended on who you were and where you were. Middle-class and upper-class white women enjoyed more flexibility and more freedom to travel, own land, and exercise control inside of their families. But minority women like Chinese and Native Americans had basically no freedom. The idyllic and triumphant American West did not exist for them. Chinese women who immigrated in the 19th century worked in laundries, saloons, and inns at mining camps. They came from impoverished families in China who had been encouraged to sell their daughters and who were then shipped to San Francisco, held in pens, and taken to mining camps. Slavery had been outlawed in the United States, but in the isolation of the West, slavery still existed. The survival and success of Native American tribes into the 21st century has the power and resilience of the 19th century Native woman to thank. These women fought hunger, disease, cultural genocide, and conquest. They were pushed by the government onto reservations, and white settlers destroyed food sources like the American bison. In 1800, there were an estimated 30 million bison roaming the western United States. Less than a century later, that population had decreased to less than 1,000. So the diversity of experiences for women in the West is huge. We had single white women claiming land just because they stood on it, and we had Chinese women who were literally enslaved. From those two ends of the spectrum to everything in between, women were experiencing life and change at a rapid pace. Women's lives in this period need to be seen through these complicated and interwoven categories of race, class, religion, marital status, and legal standing all categories that almost never remained static throughout the 19th century. We need to be sure that we see these women and their contributions to the settling of the West separate from them being dependent and loyal wives or mothers. I mean, the sisters are out here doing it for themselves! All these changes to roles, rights, and location meant that people clung pretty closely to some of the things that they thought they knew for sure, which is a common human reaction when things get different or weird. Like, they knew the sun rose in the east and set in the west. They knew that you could pan for gold in rivers and streams. And they knew that because milk was mostly raw and unpasteurized at this time, that you could expect a bottle to last for just seven to ten days. They also knew that all criminals were men. When police or sheriffs were looking for the perpetrator of a crime, they were looking for someone who looked like a criminal. And that would most likely be a man. That's not to say that a woman couldn't be a criminal. Women were just seen as more prone to lesser acts of aggression. Deeds that seemed more intimate and required less physical force than brute murder. Poisoning was a woman's method of killing, and women preferred to harm in secrecy, using their expected roles of meal prep and care for the sick to cover their plots. An Italian criminologist from the time, Cesar Lombroso, said that criminals were born criminals, and that though female aggressors were fewer in number, the female-born criminal would eventually surpass her male counterpart in cruelty. Lombroso went on, stating that women were less evolved and lacked rational control over their actions. Ladies were more prone to both physiological and psychological ailments, like hysteria. And while this classification of hysteria as only a woman's problem is extremely misogynistic, it's somewhat backfired in a legal sense. State of mind is essential in the U.S. legal system for determining responsibility, and the most important factor in determining that responsibility for a woman was menstruation. It was thought that madness became acute at times for women, particularly at the onset of her period when it was said to lower her resistance to, quote, forbidden impulses, end quote. This could have been a major factor for determining guilt, but prosecutors wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Menstruation was an unspeakable thing that only a lady should think of. So women were in a legal and cultural gray area of sorts when it came to crime, and often life at this time. 
They could fly under the radar and use systems built against them to wreak havoc on communities or to live their truths. So let's dig into the particulars of a few famous women throughout the American West. I tried to put these in the order of most commonly known to most obscure. So we're going to lead off with a big one, but right after this quick break. All right, so Annie Oakley was born Phoebe Ann Moses on August 13, 1860 in rural Ohio. Her father died when she was young, leaving behind Annie, her mother, and five siblings. Annie's mother would remarry, but soon that husband died too, forcing the family to live in a poorhouse. At one point, Annie was sent to live with a family and work their farm, and there she learned how to sew and care for sick people as well as young children. Later, she would be sent to live with another family that she only ever referred to as the Wolves. That family was cruel and abusive towards her. At eight years old, Annie began hunting, selling game to local restaurants to make money for her family. She continued to improve her marksmanship and went on to earn enough money to pay her family's mortgage. At 15, Annie entered a shooting match in Cincinnati against a touring champion on Thanksgiving Day 1875 and shot all 25 shots perfectly. Her competitor, Frank Butler, missed one. Butler was impressed by Annie and they began courting after this and were married in August of 1876 when Annie was 16 years old. Annie and Frank traveled and toured the country so Frank could perform as a marksman, and Annie worked as his assistant at this time, holding up items and props for him to shoot and doing a little shooting herself too. She adopted the stage name Oakley, and in the spring of 1882 when Frank's performing partner fell ill, Annie filled in and from that moment forward she became a permanent part of the act. Frank and Annie joined Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and performed as partners, but Annie quickly rose to fame. Frank did the right thing and chose to let his wife shine, supporting her and working as her assistant and manager. Annie Oakley became the star of Buffalo Bill's show, shooting glass balls out of midair, shooting through playing cards, and she could even hit a cigarette hanging out of her husband's mouth. As the headliner, Annie chose simple, modest, and feminine clothing rather than flashy costumes so as to not distract from the impressiveness of her shot. Annie and Frank stayed with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show for 16 years, traveling all across the U.S. and even abroad. They visited England and performed for Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee, as well as visiting Spain, Italy, and France. Annie showed the world that women could handle firearms and even outshoot men, encouraging women to learn how to use pistols and carry them in purses to protect themselves. After returning to the United States, Annie and Frank began touring less and had to stop entirely after a train wreck in 1901 that injured Annie's back. Two years later, Annie was in the middle of a legal and libel battle. There was a report in Chicago that she had been arrested for stealing a man's trousers in an attempt to sell them to make money to buy cocaine. Other papers across the country began to print the same story, but it was entirely untrue. Annie didn't use drugs, she didn't steal any man's trousers, and she wasn't even in Chicago at the time of the arrest. She had been in New Jersey. It was discovered that the woman who had been arrested had used the false name Annie Oakley, and the real Annie was outraged by the newspaper reports that had ruined her reputation and went after every paper that had printed the story. Over the course of seven years, Annie won 54 out of 55 cases against the newspapers. At the beginning of World War I, Annie wrote to Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson and offered to fully finance and raise a regiment of women volunteers to fight during the war. She also offered to teach soldiers how to accurately shoot. Both of her offers were not accepted. Annie Oakley toured again briefly in the 1920s, but not for long. On November 3, 1926, she passed away, and three weeks later, Frank died too. Now, you might be thinking, she didn't even live in the West. And you're right. But I think Annie Oakley signifies what we think of when we think of a female outlaw or a woman of the American West. And you're going to see that she went on to actually inspire some of the true outlaws of the American West. And with her sweet and lovely little story in mind, let's move on to her almost polar opposite. 
Martha Calamity Jane Canary is arguably the epitome of the tough, rebellious Western woman. Hard liquor drinking, gunslinging, and braggadocious of her exploits, Calamity Jane was no little Annie Oakley. Jane was born in Princeton, Missouri on May 1st, 1852, and she moved to Montana with her parents when she was 13. And she never took to the expectations for women and girls at this time. On the five-month wagon trip to Montana, she spent most of her time hunting with the men in the caravan. By the time that they arrived in their destination, she had a reputation as a remarkable marksman and a fearless rider. Jane's mother died after they arrived in Montana, and the family moved to Utah the following summer. These wagon trips were hard, and Jane's father would die later that same year. These losses made Jane the head of the household, and she took her siblings back to Wyoming. She took whatever jobs she could to provide for her family, working as a cook, nurse, dance hall girl, dishwasher, ox team driver, waitress, and according to some accounts, a sex worker. In 1870, she joined the army at Fort Russell and began dressing as a man. In the army, she worked as a scout and earned her nickname Calamity Jane. It's said that while riding with some other soldiers back to camp, they were attacked by a group of natives. The captain was the first shot, and even though Jane was ahead of him, when she heard the shot, she turned back to see the captain fall from his horse. She trotted back and lifted him onto her horse, taking him back to the safety of the fort. Upon recovering, Captain Egan said, quote, I name you Calamity Jane, the hero of the plains, end quote. She continued to work as a scout for the United States and in 1876 met Wild Bill Hickok in South Dakota. Both Wild Bill and Calamity Jane were extreme exaggerators and heavy drinkers, so of course they hit it off immediately. They've often said to have been romantically involved, but there's not really much support to those stories. In June of 1876, she worked as a Pony Express rider, carrying mail 50 miles over one of the roughest trails in the Black Hills. Once while watching a show at the East Lynn Opera House with her gunslinging friend Arkansas Tom, Jane became enraged at the end of the play. She stood up in her seat and spat out a long stream of tobacco juice that hit the star of the show right in the eye and dribbled down her dress. Arkansas Tom let out a whoop of excitement and began shooting out the lamps in the theater, and the crowd went wild with delight. Then Tom and Jane went arm in arm up and down the aisles, all while the crowd cheered them on. This was unfortunately the last time that Tom and Jane would see each other, because Tom was killed the very next day in a bank robbery. Such was the way of the West. By the late 1870s, Calamity Jane had captured the imagination of writers who covered the early and colorful days of the West, and one dubbed her, quote, the white devil of the Yellowstone, end quote. Throughout the 1870s and 1880s, Jane moved all over the Western United States, from South Dakota to California, Wyoming, Texas, Montana, Idaho, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon. This was all in an attempt to sell her life story to anyone who would listen, but she didn't ever find exactly what she was looking for. Along the way, she met a man in Texas, Clinton Burke, whom she married in 1885, and she gave birth to a baby girl in 1887. Finally, in 1895, she took her skills and her story to Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, where she performed sharpshooting while riding her horse. While touring with the show, she visited places all across the United States, but her dependency on alcohol was a consistent issue. Eventually, Calamity Jane was forced to leave the show because of her alcoholism. In 1900, she was found drunk in a brothel by a journalist who nursed her back to health. In 1901, she was hired by the Pan American Exposition in a good job with good pay, but she got drunk and shot out the bar glass, and she made Irish policemen dance the jig to the beat of her guns, and then she stumbled around the streets cursing the whole town. She was eventually run out. In the summer of 1903, she returned to South Dakota and the Black Hills. Her alcoholism was ravaging her body at this point, and her few personal belongings all fit into a suitcase. She found refuge in a brothel in Bell Forge, and for the next few months, she worked doing laundry and cooking for the women who worked there. By August, though, she was dying. Her last requests were to know the date. It was August 2nd, 1903, and to be buried on Mount Moriah by her friend Wild Bill Hickok, overlooking the town of Deadwood, South Dakota. Her wishes were granted, and her funeral was the largest to be held in Deadwood for a woman. 
Belle Starr was born Myra Belle Shirley near Carthage, Missouri on February 5, 1848, to a well-connected and respected family. In the beginning of her days, Belle lived a spoiled, rich girl life, attending the Carthage Female Academy where she learned music, classical languages, and of course, other regular school subjects. She was bright, and she had a talent for playing the piano. She also, though, liked to flaunt her wealth and her status, and enjoyed having an audience. Belle was also interested, though, in the outdoors, spending time with her brother roaming the countryside and learning how to ride a horse and handle a gun. All of that dramatically changed, though, when the Kansas-Missouri border war broke out. Her brother joined a group of raiders and was killed in 1864. The family was crushed by this loss, and with the added stress of their businesses struggling, the family decided to sell their Missouri property and move to Skyene, Texas. Bands of outlaws would come through Texas on the run, and seeking refuge, they would stay with Belle and her family. The James Younger gang even stayed with them, which is arguably where Belle's interest in the life of an outlaw began. Jesse James and Cole Younger would become lifelong friends to Belle, and she would look back on their time together fondly. One of the men who came to stay was Jim Reed, an old family friend from Missouri. In Texas, Jim and Belle's relationship blossomed into romance, and they married on November 1, 1866. By late 1867, Jim and Belle had returned to Missouri, living on his family's homestead. There, Belle gave birth to a baby who she affectionately called Pearl. When Jim and Belle had moved to Missouri, Jim Reed was wanted in Texas for allegedly murdering a man. The family fled to California and soon after had another child, a boy named Edward. In 1869, Belle, Jim, and two other outlaws rode into North Canadian River Country and tortured an old Creek man until they told him where he had hidden $30,000 in gold. Jim and Belle took their share of the loot and returned with their children to Texas, where Belle began to fully live out her nickname of Bandit Queen. But the life of crime and running from the law is tough, and in 1876, Jim was killed in a gunfight by a member of his own gang. Belle took her children and left them with her mother, hitting the outlaw trail and blazing forward in a new life. In Oklahoma, she became romantically involved with a native outlaw who went by the name Blue Duck, but their affair was short-lived. Soon after, another native man, Sam Starr, a tall and slim Cherokee, caught Belle's heart. Sam and Belle moved to Sam's settlement on the Canadian River, a place that they called Younger's Bend in honor of Cole Younger, and began to form their own gang of criminals. From their hideaway on the river, they made money by engaging in wrestling, horse-stealing, and bootlegging whiskey to natives. In the brains behind all of these operations was the careful and calculated Belle Starr. Once, Belle recalled a slim man with blinking blue eyes visiting her and Sam at Younger's Bend. Sam was suspicious of the distant and silent man, but Belle said it was just an old friend from Missouri. Sam Starr would never know that the blinking blue-eyed man was Jesse James. The nearest settlement to Younger's Bend was Fort Smith, Arkansas, where the famed judge Isaac Parker, the hanging judge, presided. Parker became determined to see Belle Starr behind bars. Multiple times, his deputies had brought Belle in on various charges, but she had always been let off due to a lack of evidence. In the fall of 1882, though, he got lucky, and Bell was caught red-handed attempting to steal a neighbor's horse. Bell was sentenced to two consecutive six-month incarcerations, and Sam to one year. After serving their time, Bell and Sam returned to Younger's Bend and began to do what they do best, be criminals. In 1886, the couple was arrested by U.S. Marshals, but let off for lack of evidence. By now, Bell Starr was a celebrity, with one newspaper calling her, quote, a female Robin Hood and a Jesse James, end quote. She briefly worked in a Wild West show playing the ever-fitting role of Bandit, who holds up a stagecoach. In December 1886, Sam Starr was killed during a gunfight at a friend's Christmas party. But Belle didn't remain alone for very long, and in 1889, she entered into her third marriage with a man named Jim July. This relationship, though, would be the death of her. After one particularly fierce fight, her husband offered an accomplice $200 to kill his wife. And when the man denied the offer, Jim reportedly screamed, quote, Hell, I'll kill the old hag myself and spend the money for whiskey. End quote. A few days later, on February 3, 1889, Belle Starr was ambushed, shot, and killed on a lonely country road. 
An investigation into her death followed, with suspects including her two children, her neighbor, and, you know, her husband, who had literally just a few days earlier offered to pay someone for her to die. Apparently, Belle had caught Jim fooling around with a young Cherokee girl, and she was outraged. A few weeks after her death, a deputy in pursuit of Jim fatally wounded him. Her beloved daughter Pearl, though, ensured that Belle was buried in the front yard of her cabin at Younger's Bend. I do want to give a little bit of a constant warning before we dig into this next story, though. There's going to be discussion of domestic violence and suicide in this one. So if you aren't feeling like that's for you today, please feel free to skip ahead. Brief pause to let everyone move on who needs to. Okay, so Pearl Hart was born Pearl Taylor in Ontario, Canada, and was brought up in a respectable family where she received a good education. At the age of 17, her life made a hairpin turn when she fell for a gambler named Frederick Hart. Pearl and Frederick eloped, and Frederick worked as a bartender, though he would often lose his money at gambling tables. Frederick was also a heavy drinker and became abusive towards his young wife. In 1893, the couple traveled to Chicago, where Fred worked at a sideshow and Pearl found odd jobs. It was there in Chicago that Pearl became enthralled and enamored with Wild West shows, namely Annie Oakley, who she'd seen perform. Pearl also visited the World's Fair Women's Pavilion, where she listened to women give speeches. She was inspired by these strong women and these legends of the Wild West, and she soon garnered the courage to leave her husband and board a train to Trinidad, Colorado. In Trinidad, she became a popular saloon singer, but soon learned that she was pregnant and returned to Canada to be with her family. After giving birth and passing the care of her son to her family, she left for the U.S. again and landed in Phoenix, Arizona. Here, Pearl was disappointed with the West that she had dreamed of, not finding the glamour or excitement that had drawn her there, but rather working as a cook in a cafe and a laundress to support her income. But nevertheless, she stayed, and in 1895, Frederick came after her. He begged Pearl to return home with him and promised to get a regular job if she did so. The couple reunited, and Fred got the job that he promised, but this stability wasn't really all that great for the hearts. They began frequenting saloons and gambling parlors, and Pearl began to smoke and drink, even indulging in harsher substances like cannabis and morphine. If you'd believe it, this drug-induced idealism didn't last long in their relationship, and after Pearl gave birth to a second child, a girl, Fred decided that he was done with domestic life entirely. A violent argument between Pearl and Fred in 1898 escalated to Fred knocking Pearl unconscious and leaving her to ride off with Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. Pearl again returned to her parents but didn't stay long, leaving her second child behind and heading back to the West. Back in Arizona, Pearl found herself working odd jobs in mining camps and doing whatever it took to make it, but this was incredibly hard for a woman alone. She found it difficult to survive at some points, and she became very depressed, and even attempted to take her own life several times, but was saved by acquaintances. In 1899, though, she met a miner named Joe Boot, and after receiving a letter from her brother informing her that their mother was ill and needed money for medical bills, Pearl turned to Joe for advice. Joe had long been planning to rob a train and was foaming at the mouth with ideas for Pearl to make some quick cash. Their first plot was very Jennifer Lopez hustlers, with Pearl luring men into a room thinking that they were going to get a little romance time, but instead Joe would just knock them out cold, and then the pair would take the unsuspecting man's money. But this scheme wasn't making enough cash, so they needed to think bigger. They landed on robbing a stagecoach and selected one that would be traveling between Florence and Globe, Arizona. Pearl cut her hair and dressed in Joe's clothing in preparation for the heist. On May 30, 1899, they carried out their plan, jumping in front of the stagecoach with their guns drawn and ordering the driver to stop. Joe kept his gun on the driver and Pearl ushered passengers out of the coach, making them empty their pockets as they did so. They made off with about $450 and a revolver, a pretty fair plunder. But even with all that preparation, they had missed one giant point of importance, the desert hills. Riding off on their horses, the pair soon got lost, and after a couple of days, they made camp in a grove of trees and fell asleep. Later, when they woke up, they were surrounded by the sheriff and his posse. 
The pair was then taken to the Globe Jail, and Pearl played up her role as the Lady Bandit, literally signing autographs on the way to jail and waving to anyone who wanted to catch a glimpse of her. A few short weeks after her capture, she escaped jail, which would only further fan the flames of her legend. A posse was formed to find her, and she was quickly found and returned to prison. Pearl's trial took place in November of 1899, where she repeatedly insisted that the court had no right to put her on trial, stating, quote, I shall not consent to be tried under a law in which my sex had no voice in making, end quote. Go off, sis. She did admit that she was guilty, though. Mm. But it didn't really matter. The jury acquitted her, probably because she had done the robbery to help her sick mother. But the trial judge was furious at the verdict, and he soon replaced the jury and retried Pearl for unlawfully carrying a weapon. This time, the jury was not swayed, and she was sentenced to five years in Yuma Territorial Prison. Pearl's celebrity only grew while she was in prison, because the warden loved attention, so it was a match made in heaven that he had a literal living legend at the jail. She enjoyed a larger-than-average room and would pose for photos with visitors and reporters. After 18 months, she was paroled and moved to Kansas City. There, she had planned to profit off of her fame as the Lady Bandit, but that fame quickly faded, and she disappeared from public view for a few years until she was arrested in Kansas City for buying stolen goods. After this, she disappeared until 1924, where she popped up at the old courthouse in Florence where she had been tried. While there, it's stated that she said to an attendant with a smile, nothing has changed. And when he asked her who she was, she turned in a doorway and dramatically exclaimed, I'm Pearl Hart, the Lady Bandit. I can't be sure that she exactly sounded like that, but she did to me, so that's how she sounds to y'all. The exact end date of Pearl Hart's life is unknown, with some saying she died in Kansas City and others saying that she lived in San Francisco until her death in 1952. But most often it's said that she remarried and lived the last of her days in Dripping Springs, Arizona, going by the name Pearl Bywater and dying in 1956. The next person I'm going to discuss lived their life as a man, and while we don't know how they would identify now in our modern LGBTQIA world, I want to be respectful of the life that they so fiercely pursued and bravely created for themselves. So I will be using he, him pronouns because those are what this person used while they were still living. Born Charlotte Darkey Parkhurst in New Hampshire in 1812, One-Eyed Charlie, Mountain Charlie, or Six Horse Charlie, those were all his super badass nicknames, was abandoned and left at an orphanage by his parents. In that orphanage, a young Charlie began to notice the differences between boys and girls, noting that boys had a greater advantage over girls in the battle of life. So he decided to live forth as a boy. Charlie ran away from the orphanage while wearing boys' clothes and never looked back. He wound up in Worcester, Massachusetts, working to clean horse stables. This is also where Charlie met a mentor, Ebenezer Balk, who taught him how to handle horses. In 1849, two of Charlie's friends went to California where they consolidated several small stage lines to create the California Stage Company. Charlie had been working at this time as a stagecoach driver on the East Coast for a few years and, like his friends, thought that California held much promise. In either 1850 or 1851, Charlie traveled by ship to Panama, then traversed a short overland route, took one more boat, and then arrived in San Francisco. I'm not really sure how or why going through Central America would be faster or easier than going overland across the United States, but I mean, I've never been to Panama, so Charlie's got me there. In California, he quickly became known for his ability to move both passengers and gold safely between outposts. The historian Ed Sams says in his 2014 book, The Real Mountain Charlie, quote, only a rare breed of men could be depended upon to ignore the gold fever of the 1850s and hold down a steady job of grueling travel, end quote. It's said that Charlie wore long-fingered gloves year-round to hide his smaller, more feminine hands, and he was considered to be one of the safest stagecoach drivers in business, not a daredevil like so many of the others. And he had a special bond with his horses. Charlie drove a stagecoach for Wells Fargo and at least once moved a large load of gold across the country. 
1969 article from the travel section of the New York Times talked of the dangers looming along his route. Quote, Indians and grizzly bears were a major menace. The state lines of California in a post-gold rush period were certainly no place for a lady, and nobody ever accused Charlie of being one. End quote. The article later recalled that the only feminine attribute friends remembered Charlie expressing was a love for children. Once, Charlie was kicked in the eye by a horse who had been startled. This earned him the nickname of One-Eye Charlie, and he began to wear a black eye patch over his left eye. One of his companions said of him, quote, he outswore, outdrank, and outchewed even the Monterey whalers, end quote. By the late 1860s, railroads made stagecoach driving a dying profession, and Charlie retired, opening a saloon for some time and then working in Northern California as a lumberjack. Charlie's story is far from over, though, because in 1867, a Santa Cruz County registry lists a Charles Darkey Parkhurst from New Hampshire as registering to vote. This was more than 50 years before the 19th Amendment would grant the right to vote for women all over the United States. And Charlie, living in his truth, did it. After the 1860s, Charlie worked as a rancher and raised chicken. And at the time of his death, Charlie had a considerable level of wealth, passing alone in his cabin, with no one near and his secret belonging only to him. He died of oral cancer on December 18, 1879, and it was only after his death that doctors and friends discovered that he had been assigned a female at birth. Charlie's friends, newspapers, and people all over were astonished to learn this. And the San Francisco Morning Call stated, quote, It is beyond question that one of the soberest, pleasantest, and most expert drivers in this state and one of the most celebrated of the world-famed California drivers was a woman. And is it not true that a woman had done what woman can do? End quote. Ooh, I got chills. Born enslaved in Tennessee in the early 1830s, Mary Fields lived in bondage until the end of the Civil War and emancipation. After this, Mary traveled around the South, finding work on steamboats along the Mississippi River. She eventually found herself in an Ursuline convent in Toledo, Ohio, and as I'm sure you know, we don't have great records for enslaved people, so therefore we don't really know a whole lot about Mary's life before she reached Toledo. According to the records of the Ursuline's archivist, Mary arrived in Toledo by train in 1870 and worked for the nuns washing laundry, managing the kitchen, and maintaining the convent grounds and gardens. Her gruff personality clashed with the serenity of the convent, and Mary was known to lose her temper and yell at anyone who stepped on the grass after she cut it. While Mary lived in the convent in Toledo, several of the nuns left for St. Peter's Mission in Montana. Mary moved to Montana in 1885, but she didn't document why. It's most likely that she moved to support the day-to-day -day needs and the operations of the mission in Montana. And while Mary was an important part of maintaining the mission, she was not fully accepted as part of the community there. When she arrived in Montana in 1885, there were about 150 people living at the mission, and Mary kept them all fed. She cultivated a large garden and hunted game. She also coordinated the delivery of supplies to the remote mission. She lived on the property but refused to be paid for her work, but we don't have documentation as to why. Maybe she was just deeply generous and altruistic. No matter her reasoning, Mary found a new level of freedom in Montana and was able to come and go as she pleased from the convent or accept other employment opportunities. Mary had a messy relationship with the leadership of the mission, mainly because she didn't conform to their gender norms. She would dress in men's clothing and took on physical jobs that were traditionally done by men. Around a year after her arrival at the mission, rumors spread in the nearby town of Cascade that Mary had engaged in a shooting duel. In reality, she and a janitor at the mission had gotten into an altercation and both had drawn their pistols, but neither one of them fired. The bishop that oversaw the mission banned her from St. Peter's, and while they didn't always agree, the nuns depended on Mary and were saddened at her banishment. Mary moved to Cascade and was the town's only black resident from 1886 through 1914. Her relationship with other people in the town was complicated, and she refused to take work that was stereotypical of her race, like working as a domestic servant for a white family. Mary attempted to open one or more restaurants at this time, but they were all said to fail due to her giving nature and allowing people who couldn't pay to eat anyway. 
She also attempted to set up a laundry shop and worked other odd jobs to make money. Throughout this time frame, Mary became known in Cascade for drinking, smoking, and gun-toting. In 1895, while in her early 60s, with the help of her friends at the convent, Mary obtained a contract with the United States Post Office Department to be a star route carrier. A star route carrier was an independent contractor who used a stagecoach to deliver the mail. Mary was the second woman and the first black woman to receive a star route contract from the U.S. Post Office Department. Mary gained a new reputation as a mail carrier, one of fearlessness and grit. She not only delivered the mail, but she kept it safe from bandits, thieves, wolves, and weather. She also gained the nickname Stagecoach Mary and became known for carrying a rifle and a revolver while she was making her deliveries. Mary worked as a star route carrier for eight years, never missing a day of work. Her route was a 34-mile round trip, and when the snow was too deep to drive the stagecoach, Mary would go out with snowshoes and deliver the mail on foot. Even as she was well into her 60s, Mary never let the hardships of the job keep her from completing her route. At the time of her retirement, Mary was beloved by the locals of Cascade for her fearlessness, generosity, and kindness to children. When she retired to Cascade, she again started a laundry service and opened an eatery and babysat local children. She remained famous in the area and was even the mascot for the local baseball team. She drank in saloons for free and ate for free at local restaurants and hotels. Mary Fields died on December 5, 1914, and after her death, the townspeople raised money to have her buried in a cemetery along the road between the Mission and Cascade. Mary's funeral was said to be one of the largest in town. I think it's certainly safe to say that these stories are incredible, fascinating, and almost otherworldly. And these are just a small glimpse of what life for a woman outside of the typical family structure could have been like for someone in the West. One of the articles that I read about Calamity Jane used this quote from English professor Margot Mifflin that I think really puts everything about these women best by stating, quote, she was the Courtney Love of her day, a talented pioneer in a man's world. She was a chronic substance abuser prone to outrageous behavior and forever linked in the public mind to a dead man whose fame overshadowed her own, end quote. The lives and tales of these incredible individuals became folklore, their experiences exaggerated in dime novels and musicals and movies, but still constantly used in comparison or to support the story of a man. Of course, the lines between fact and fiction here are heavily blurred and often hard to separate, but one thing is extremely clear. The women of the American West were pioneers in every sense of the word, and their challengings to the systems that they lived in are still wildly inspiring to us. Oh my goodness. Oh my gourd. This is a long one, y'all. I don't even I don't even have to look at the time on the recording right now to know that this is a long one. Um because let me go ahead and tell you that usually my scripts are about 15 to 17 pages long. This was a 25 pager. Yeah, we're not including resources, just a solid 25 pages. So I'm sure that you guys are ready to move on. I know that I am ready to move out of this uncomfortable position that I have found myself seated in. My spine is not straight. <laughs> um, so I think that that's going to be where I cut it off this week, y'all. Please, if you enjoyed any of our episodes over Women's History Month, share them with somebody that you love. Share them with someone that you think needs to learn more about any of the topics we discussed. And rate the pod. Follow us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts. I'm also on Amazon and Google Podcasts now. I hope that you guys will join me next week in the pursuit to know a little bit about everything. In the meantime, just love yourselves, take care of each other, and mostly stay safe out there. Until next time, guys. Thanks.